Do you have any dreams for your life that other people just don't know about? Are there maybe, is there maybe a job or a hobby or something that you secretly always want to be or do? And you don't really talk about it and you feel like a little kid talking about when you want, when you grow up, what you're going to be, but it's just something you want to do. My mom, um, still to this day, but when I was a kid, she did a lot. She used the word frustrated, but she used it in a very technical sense. So much so that I don't know if other people always use it this way. We think of frustrated as just kind of annoyed and aggravated at a situation. But she would use frustrated as an adjective, which meant unable to pursue a certain career. So she would say, I'm a frustrated architect. I want to be an architect, architect, but I'm not capable of doing it, or I didn't go through the schooling, or I never pursued that. Um, we had a a president of our university that was a frustrated architect. We had heard that he always wanted to be one. And so every time a new building went up, we were like, ah, that's him playing out this fantasy in his head, right? He's not an architect, but he can build another building and that'll make him happy. Uh, I think a lot of us have these things, these kind of dreams that we have that we don't share with people or these things that we really hope for, these deep-seated things. And it's kind of interesting because sometimes we pretend like God doesn't care about those things, right? Like those are just silly, childish things. Grow up, get a job, right? There's a whole lot of kids that want to be astronauts, yet a whole lot of people end up becoming far more boring, mundane jobs, right? Because it's more employable than astronauts. Apparently, we're not hiring many of those right now. And so we have all these things inside of us that we really want, and maybe they're personal goals or they're goals for our family or our kids or our friends. Or maybe they're just moments that we're really excited about, right? Uh, weddings do this. People have dreams of what the wedding is going to be like. Maybe their own. Maybe their child's. Not that any of those things are things I've experienced recently, right? You know, there's just all these hopes and these desires about what this is going to look like. And we have a story today as we're going through the book of John, as we look through this idea of what it looks like to be next to Jesus, where we find out what it's like to be next to Jesus at a wedding and what Jesus does with people's dreams and their hopes. Uh, we're going to start in John 2, uh, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Um, I love the humanity of the setup of this story. Right? Uh, we can see this scene. They're at the wedding. They're having this big party. And it turns out that the wine has run out. And you can just imagine the human emotions. You can imagine the hustle and bustle. You can see the different tables, right? Like Jesus' disciples hanging out over here. I don't know if they gave numbers and placards like we do nowadays, right? But they had, you know, just having a good time. And secretly behind the scenes, they find out that there is no wine. And I want to suggest that there are three people or groups of people in the story today that have some kind of dream that is put at risk. The first would be the bride and groom 
and, well, frankly, the guy who's running the banquet. It turns out the bride and groom doesn't seem like they know ahead of time, but they're running out of wine. Now, at this point, people will go into cultural explanations of the ancient world to tell you why this is a big deal. You don't need that, right? If you're at a wedding where they run out of booze, it's just not much fun, right? This would be a bad thing. This is something that freaks people out. You can just imagine, those of you who've had weddings recently, being there and hearing, oh, we don't have anything left to drink. We just flat run out. And there's still half the reception to go. And you just, we just know intuitively that that's embarrassing and that's difficult. Um, we know, you know, as the ancient world does matter here, there is an embarrassment about this. In a world where hospitality is so important, like the ancient world, the idea that you would run out enough uh, for your guests. This story still freaks me out to this day. Fran and I try to make sure we always have enough food when we do a big church event, right? You can't run out. It's a big deal to Jesus if you run out of food, right? You cannot run out. And you can see the social embarrassment this couple would have. I don't know if, if ancient people dreamed about their weddings the way that we sort of fetishize it in our world today. But you can imagine that there's going to be some heartbreak when this news comes out. This beautiful, glorious day will now always be remembered as the day that Tammy and Bill couldn't order enough wine, right? This is how everyone's always going to remember the wedding. And their dreams of this beautiful day, their thoughts of looking back with it with fondness, all of those things are starting to evaporate. The, the banquet master, as the scripture says, I don't know who he is. I don't know if he's hired. I don't know if he's a friend, but he's never getting this job again, right? Because he has failed as banquet master. And so the bride and groom are staring down this sort of dashed dream where the wedding of the century becomes that wedding where they ran out of wine. And it's a really real human problem. And if you've ever been around brides, I'm sure there's going to be lots of tears, right? A lot of times brides get close to their wedding and they just start breaking out in tears. If anything's going wrong, just imagine how she's going to feel on this day. What I love is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, then interjects herself into this story. And she does it in the most mom way possible, right? First of all, apparently Mary is running around behind the scenes checking on the wine levels, right? Like, how does Mary know this ahead of everybody else? I just find this a fascinating detail of the story. She's apparently the kind of woman who's sitting helping in the back, and she goes, oh, no, we're running out of wine. I've got to do something about it. Like, she is in there, right? And so she immediately moves out to Jesus, and she goes, you have to help these people. And it's fascinating that she is just ready to push Jesus right into this. There's no questions in her mind. This is um, it's kind of confusing. John calls this the first sign that Jesus performed. We tend to call that the first miracle that he performed. Uh, it may be that John has an idea of what a sign is versus a miracle, and maybe it's not the first miracle. But generally speaking, we call this the first miracle. It's not like Jesus has been doing this stuff left and right. But Mary is confident that her son can do it. And that's because Mary has dreams too. Mary knows the unusual circumstance that her son was born into. The scriptures, that verse that always makes moms just melt at Christmas time, right? That Mary pondered all of these things in her heart. Mary, did you know? The answer is no, Mary didn't know. But anyways, the song is very lovely. We all love it. Um, but there's this idea that she has this idea that something special is happening. And this child is, is important. 
And so she's been thinking about that as he grows up. She had that weird thing at the temple where he stayed and he's doing his father's business. And she's like, what's going on here? Undoubtedly, there was all these moments where just raising this kid was different. I think my son's the Messiah. And then he gets to 33. And Mary might be asking, when is he going to move out of my basement? Right? I mean, it's more common in the ancient world for kids to live with their parents a long time. But you wonder if Mary is sitting here thinking, he's 30. And he's still not messiahing about yet, right? <laughs> like, what's, what's the deal? I was waiting for fireworks. I was waiting for more. I mean, you have a virgin birth. You don't think you'll be at 30. And he's still working with his dad, right? I don't know if she's thinking these things, but I would be. And clearly, she want, what we do know is she wants to push the envelope. It's time, it's time, it's time. And even when Jesus goes, no, mother, it is not time. What does she do? She directly disobeys Jesus. This is awesome, right? This shows you a little bit about the mother-son relationship. Jesus, you need to do this. Mom, it's not time yet. Okay, whatever. Listen, if he tells you to do anything, you do it, okay? She is undermining the Son of God, right? Because she's his mom, and she thinks it's time to go. And she has this dream, and she's ready to move. And then the first, last person we have is um, Jesus. Um, this story is really interesting to me because I don't know what Jesus' hang-up exactly is here. We do know that Jesus has a concept of what the Messiah looks like that is distinctly different than almost everyone else around him. And in the Gospels, time after time after time, people go, well, you're the Messiah, you've got to do this. And he's like, no, that's not how the Messiah works. And they're like, well, but, but you've got to do this. And he goes, no, that's not how that works. And here's Mary, I mean, his own family. John gives us two of these accounts. There's this story, and later there'll be a time where he goes to a festival that we'll talk about in our feast groups this week. And his brothers go, you should go up to the festival. And he goes, no, it's not my time. Back off. His brothers are like, well, some Messiah this guy is, right? And they're kind of mocking their brother. Jesus had familial pressure to be a different Messiah than he wanted to be. And so I wonder what, what's going on here. Is Jesus dealing with some self-doubt? Is he still not sure about what he's supposed to do? Or does he see this as a misuse of power? Is he like, Mom, I have the divine on my hip. I'm not using it to make wine, right? Or maybe it's just wrong timing. Maybe he's really correct. Like, this is not the time. The Messiah train is not supposed to leave the station yet. Stop, Mom. Hold up. Or maybe um, Mary's right and he's just too slow to the trigger for some reason. It's really interesting for me to talk about. I don't really know. Uh, I, do, I do wonder about his tone in this. Uh, woman is a more respectful way in this text to talk than we would, right? If you think, why would Jesus go, woman, stop asking me this? Well, this, this word is probably loving, respectful. It's more like mom. But there's still this fascinating moment, and you almost hear Jesus kind of like, Mom, you're embarrassing me in front of my friends, right? He's got all these new disciples that are hanging out with him, and his mom is telling him what to do. And Jesus has all these thoughts about what his ministry is going to look like, and here's his mom trying to force him into something faster than he's ready. So uh, those are our three people in our three dreams. We have the couple, and there's the danger that their wedding dream will be ruined. We have Mary and the danger that her dreams for her sons will be delayed. And there's Jesus and the danger that his dreams for his ministry are going to be altered. What do you do when dreams are threatened or delayed or changed? 
There we go. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through, uh, through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Uh, just a side note, if you ever hear someone say that there was not, Jesus doesn't make real wine because real wine doesn't exist in the ancient world because wine is never strong enough to make someone drunk in the ancient world, the text clearly states that the wine is strong enough to get someone drunk. Totally aside, that may not mean anything to some of you, but it's obviously in the story. When we deal with these dreams, it's interesting to see what Jesus does. For the couple... Jesus spares the dying dream of the couple, right? There is just so much mercy in this moment. Jesus sees this moment that is about to become broken for them. And even though he doesn't want to do it, I have to think that some of this is just the compassion of Jesus. He's like, this is not my time, but I really don't want them walking away disheartened by this. And what it shows us is that when it comes to hopes and dreams that we might have, Jesus has compassion for those things. That being embarrassed by running out of wine is something that Jesus cares about. Uh, often we have this problem where we have something going on in our lives that feels so minor that we don't want to talk to another human being about it, much less bother the king of the universe with it, right? Man, that is just so unimportant. And I think what the story tells us is Jesus cares about those little dreams. He cares about the stuff that makes you sad, right? It, you know, if you had like that one photo you wanted with your child before they went off to college and you're going to miss it, he cares about that, right? That kind of stuff, that stuff that hurts our hearts, that stuff that makes life feel broken and shattered. Jesus wants to help keep those things back together. And so we just see the compassion of Jesus. What's it like to be next to Jesus? It's like being next to someone who's compassionate and caring about the things that are important to us. Um, second of all, Jesus is willing to jumpstart dreams. Uh, what Mary does here is a lot like what we do sometimes. Um, have you ever had an idea that you thought was a good idea, something you wanted to do, and you're like, God, I think this is the right thing. I hope it is. Let's go. And you just take off. And you kind of hope that God will catch up and bless you as you go on your merry way. I was talking to um, our friend this week that was helping us with plumbing. And we were talking about kids and how kids will jump into your arms. You'll throw them in the air. And he said he had children who uh, wanted to be six inches away before they would jump off the couch into his arms, right? They had to be right next to him before they would feel safe to jump. He said, I had another child, though, that would get on the couch and get a running start fling themselves in the air before I even knew they were coming, right? 
And I would have to react quickly to catch them midair because there was no, hey, dad, get ready. I'm doing this. They just trusted dad was going to be there. And God's used to us being that way sometimes. Sometimes we just take off and we get going and we get moving before we even ask God what he thinks about it. And there are times where he's good enough to play along where he goes, okay, I would have liked a little, you know, heads up, but let's go. This is what happens here with Mary. Mary's like, Jesus, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And whether he's honoring his mom or whether he thinks she's right in the end or whatever happens, Mary is putting the pedal to the metal on the Messiah thing. And Jesus goes, all right, sure. Okay, Mary, let's do it. And he jumps in and gets part of it. If you want to take off and do something, I suggest inquiring of the Lord first. But if you ever get in that moment where you're like, oh, I have gotten way in over my head. That's okay. Over, over, in over your head is Peter and it's Mary and it's a whole bunch of people in scripture. And often God responds to that by lovingly and kindly saying, all right, let's do it. Uh, if people didn't do crazy things for God, then most of the churches in the world wouldn't exist, right? Because people just try stuff. And God is so good about rewarding us if we're doing things in the right spirit and the right heart. Uh, the first thing, the, the final thing that Jesus does with dreams is it shows us that Jesus is really willing to kill his own dreams for us. Um, Jesus doesn't get his way in this story. And in many ways, this is, um, it foreshadows. It's in the book of John that Jesus is going to say, please take this cup from me. I don't want to do this, but I want your will. It's a, um, I just noticed it. There's a beautiful symmetry in the book that Jesus' first actions in his ministry are to tell his mother, not my will, but yours. And then his final acts before his death is to tell his heavenly father, not my will, but yours. Right? And this is the hardest part, that sometimes when it comes to our dreams and our hopes and the things we want to do, we've got to swallow them and do what's best for other people. And in doing so, we're like Jesus. Jesus does not, um, Jesus doesn't demand his own will and his own way so much that he won't let way for somebody else. And so we see, um, we see here just different ways that Jesus handles these kinds of things. And he calls us to something different. When I think about um, Jesus letting Mary have her way this, in this situation, of Jesus letting his own dream die for the sake of Mary's, right? They're directly contradicting. He does Mary's thing, not his own. And I think a little bit of, uh, it's like a reverse deal that sometimes you have with parents and kids. Uh, it's always kind of cool when you hear these stories of immigrant families that came to the United States so their kids could have a better life. And often it's that first generation that doesn't get the payoff from it, right? Often that first generation just slugs their way through so that their kids can get educated and get good jobs and kind of live that dream the parents wanted. And there's something beautiful in that, in this idea of I sacrifice for somebody else. And Jesus exemplifies that in the story, and I think he kind of asks us what we're going to do with those things, how we're going to deal with it. Um, this morning, you may have something that you really want to do. You may have something that really matters to you. It might be one of those secret little dreams that you don't share with people because you're kind of embarrassed about it. And I think the story tells you that there's a couple things that could happen. 
Jesus may come in and just, um, Jesus may come in and, and save that for you. It might be close to dying and he's ready to let you try that. It may be that you're just going to go ahead and do it and Jesus will catch up with you and help you get there. Or it may be that that's something that has to be put aside so that you can help somebody else do something. That you can be the person giving a hand up. Um, in this story, when it comes to who Jesus is, what it was like to sit next to Jesus, Jesus was the kind of person who would put his own hopes and desires and will aside to do the things that God called him to do. And it was an incredible blessing to other people, but it was also an incredible loss to himself. And it's that obedience and that sacrifice that makes him so different than all the other characters in the story. All right, uh, if you're new to us, we do a question and answer period at the end of all of our sermons. So if you have any thoughts, uh, questions on the text, uh, how we applied it, any of those things, uh, feel free to share your questions now and we'll try to answer them. Just to kind of extend that out, this idea that it seems like Jesus just really doesn't want to do this and it seems like Mary is kind of pushing him to do the thing he should do. Uh, it is fascinating. We sometimes talk about Jesus and we think about like Jesus floating on the cloud, all wise, knowing the right answer all the time. There are a couple times in scripture where Jesus loses an argument, right? Uh, this is an example, uh, the Canaanite woman, where Jesus talks about, you know, you don't throw crumbs to dogs. And she goes, well, even dogs, or food to dogs. And she says, well, even dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the children's table. And he's like, oh, geez, you're right. <laughs> right? That's a weird story. Jesus gets into an argument with a woman, and he's kind of nasty to her. And she's like, you know, you should be kinder than that. And he's like, yeah, you're right, I should. And you're like, what? What is that? How does, what does that mean? Um, that's not going really much of anywhere except to say it is interesting that there are times where Jesus does lose an argument, where Jesus is shown to do things a better way. And it's just, it's what we talked about a week or two ago. You know, Hebrew author saying that Jesus learned perfection via obedience. And Luke saying that he grew in stature and in wisdom. That this Jesus thing is interesting, how he became Jesus. Not just started that way as like a baby, you know. Anyway, other questions? <laughs> yeah. We, um, we've got a, I think it's on the website. Well, I did a sermon about a year ago about Huldah the prophetess, and they're looking for the law, and they find the book of the law, and they're trying to determine if this is really the word of God or not, and so they go to this lady who's a prophetess, and they just, for some reason, they trust that she's the voice of God to speak if this is true or not, and we kind of ask that question, do you have holdas sitting around you, people that people don't think of as the first person, they're not the king, they're not the high priest, but when you really need a word from the Lord, they come out of this little old lady who lives down the street, right? And that we have to listen to those voices. Yeah. It does make you wonder how many, <laughs> this is the first recorded one we have. How many times has Jesus done this in 30 years? You know, like, you know, Jesus, the lawn's getting a little long. If you could just kind of speak a word over it and shrink it back down, that would be nice. You know, like, who knows what else she's asked for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other questions? I mean, certainly, so this is Mary, right? Like, Mary is getting told directly by the Son of God that this is not the right time, and she still goes, hey, whatever he says to do, do it, right? Like, she just ignores that. So there is something about that ambition 
like that desire to do new things, that jumping off the couch before you know you'll be caught. And so I, I just think Mary is the character in the story that, that, that lives that out, you know? I guess, the, you know, for the, the recording, the, the question is, how do we go out and do things in faith when you have family and spouse and children and things that stop you from kind of doing more radical faith things? Uh, first of all, I just want to say that that's totally legit because this is why Paul says you shouldn't get married, right? When you No, seriously, if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul says if you're the kind of person that can be married and not overcome with lust and, you know, ruin yourself, you know, your life with that stuff, do it because people who don't get married have the time and the energy and the focus to serve God more than people who do get married. So all that to say, the pinch that you're feeling is a pinch that Paul affirms. Now, he suggests never get married in the first place, but you already, you know, we've already crossed that bridge. Most, many of us have. So that's, that's not going to be unchanged. You know, it's not going to be changed. But nonetheless, that's just to say that the scriptures are aware of that, you know. Um, I guess all the other, the other half of that is just, um, I'll just say it bluntly. You know, I, I think you trust me. Um, family is one of the greatest idols of American Christendom. That taking care of my spouse and my kids is the most important thing in my life. And because of that, sometimes I will do nothing that costs anything to my family or kids for the sake of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think you should get divorced and get rid of the kids and then go do whatever God calls you to do. It's not what scripture says. But there's also a place where sometimes family sacrifices for God. Right? Like a classic one. When I was a kid, if we had a baseball game on a Wednesday night and we had Wednesday night Bible study, you left the baseball game in the fourth inning if you had to to get to church because church comes first. Now that is something that as a kid, my coaches hated me for. It's something that sometimes I gave my parents garbage for because I was frustrated that I had to do it. But their deal was like, listen, God comes first. And if God causes strife in our family... That's okay because that's ultimately first. I mean, Jesus says this really more harshly when he says that I've come not to bring peace but a sword, to turn father against mother and, or father against child and child against five. Well, anyways, I'm messing that verse up. But basically, Jesus says there's going to be conflict. And people who follow me are going to have conflict with their family members because of that. This is the same Jesus who when his mom and dad, when his mom and dad, when his mom and his brothers show up to hang out with him, and people say, hey, your brothers are outside. He goes, those aren't my brothers. The people in this room are my brothers. That probably made Thanksgiving a little uncomfortable that year, right? Like that is not going to go down well. But there is an idea that sometimes family pays a price for what God wants. And it's tricky for us because culturally we are not told that. Frankly, in our churches, we are not told that because our churches have bought into the idolatry of family in just as much as the culture has. And so that's just, that's a tension. All that to say, yes, you have to say no to certain things because of family. And Paul told us that that would happen. But on the flip side, there are times where we have to ask ourselves, am I paying enough price? Or am I elevating family needs above God's needs? Does that make sense? Might have to just, you, sometimes you split the difference though. And so like if the church is doing an overseas mission trip next summer, you would put a lot of time and effort and energy into making sure you could go on it. Yeah, something like that.